Certainly conditions were very uh, different in the field then as compared to now. Basically we were left on our own for the best part of three months. We had one geologist and a field assistant. So basically field assistants were you know, paired with a, a geologist for life, shall we say. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear from Alan Nutman, Professor of Geology at the University of Wollongong in Australia, about his early years working as a field assistant in Greenland while studying geology at Exeter University, which led him to work for the Geological Survey of Greenland and later to lifelong research collaborations with two other geologists, particularly focused on some of the oldest rocks on Earth. In the later years of high school, I was wondering what to do with my life. And then I saw a program on BBC TV, which was called The Restless Earth. And I can only nowadays remember two little snippets. One was this uh, snippet about this crazy New Zealander who had found these amazingly ancient rocks in Greenland. And I remember seeing uh, of him being filmed in a yola approaching the outcrops and then explaining a little bit about it. The other image I can remember was that photograph of somebody uh, sitting maybe somewhere very high up in the Alps, sketching tectonic structures. And really those two images, one of Vic McGregor in Greenland and somebody on the top of the Alps, I decided I want to be a geologist. In the UK system, you could make five applications. Of those applications, four universities turned me down flat and... The only university that offered me a place was Exeter University. And I remember in the interview being told, oh, we actually have a mapping project in Greenland and we take undergraduate students along as mapping assistants. And I thought, oh, that sounds really great. So anyway, I started at Exeter. I came first in the mid-session exams and then I was invited to go to Greenland as a field assistant at the tender age of 19. So that's how I first really got into Greenland. It was the Books of Fjorden mapping project being run by the Greenland Survey just south of Nuuk being serviced by a GGU base camp down in Migor. GGU is an acronym for the Geological Survey of Greenland. Certainly conditions were very uh, different in the field then as compared to now. Basically, we were left on our own for the best part of three months. We had one geologist and a field assistant. So one actually became extremely sensitive to other people's little idiosyncrasies after three months. So basically field assistants were, you know, paired with a, a geologist for life, shall we say. <laughs> We had two single skin tents, which were actually more suitable for summer camping in Denmark than Greenland. You had this little yellow tent and you had a somewhat bigger white tent. And it just simply wasn't practical to have different people sleeping in different tents. 
So when Ivor used the big white tent as a sort of joint, both sleeping and living tent, and the kitchen was in the little yellow tent with stores, or one would sometimes it would just simply sleep in the little yellow tent and then have a sort of kitchen living in the in the bigger white tent. I can certainly remember at night in storms being out in my underpants trying to tie on guy ropes again because between the guy ropes and the and the canvas of a tent there were these little plastic rings and if you had a big gust of wind these little plastic rings would snap and then basically the guy rope would become detached and of course the tent would then start billowing in. So if you have a nice sheltered coastal campsite it's fine but certainly in the higher areas there's certainly not so good things to have. Our emergency equipment consisted of a tarpaulin to get under if the tents blew down. The normal environment in those days when I was working with the Greenland Survey is that if you're inland you would have camps nominally for about a week at a time. The idea was that you were put in by helicopter and then you would access as much of a geology as you can within walking distance of that camp. There was a radio back to base camp. On the actual frequency you often have bizarrely interference coming from a radio station from an African country. So I distinctly remember hearing Fico Cowsbeek, who was the leader of a base camp in Migor, with the sound of bongo drums in the background. So it's just one of these weird freaks of the ionosphere. On the camp radios, you actually had to put out a very long aerial, and you had two poles, which you had to put up, and then the aerial was strung in between, and then the lead-off from the aerial went into the tent for the radio. And this comes on to the subject of Arctic foxes. Arctic foxes have some bizarre fetish regarding copper wire, and <laughs> I don't know how they know that there was a copper wire hanging up there somewhere, but it was... On several occasions, you'd have an Arctic fox actually bringing down one of the supporting poles just to get at the copper wire and chew it. The other thing about Arctic foxes is you never left your soap or toothpaste outside of a tent because, again, they had a lovely penchant for soap and toothpaste. There were these two radio calls. In the morning call, every camp was called to make sure everybody was okay and there'd be an evening call from the base camp, everybody checking in to make sure that everything was all right. Particularly the evening calls, there'd be a bit of transaction. So if somebody was planning on being moved the next day, then there would be sort of information approximately when the helicopters would be turning up. Food orders would be put in, which leads me off into the other subject, which is the food. Shall we say the food was not the best? There were food boxes which were supposed to last two people, you know, for six days. And there was an A box, a B box and a C box. And in the field season, you went in a rotation through that. Some of the food boxes were more than a year old. So that, for example, all the packaged rye bread in it had gone mouldy. We used to have some really weird and disgusting stuff. I remember we had... This what was supposedly corned beef from the People's Republic of China, which I guess was almost inedible. And we used to call it the Cultural Revolution 
the idea that you know people who have been killed, that's what had happened to them. There was what was normally supposed to be Russian tuna, which we used to call cardboard in motor oil. It was just awful. So this was, you know, all through the 70s. Boxes were really awful. So after two and a half to three months of that, I was actually not put off at all. And then on the second year, end of second year at university, I was also chosen to come along as a field assistant in the same project. And then after that, there was one PhD position left on that particular project. And I was offered that PhD project, which was to focus entirely on the early Archean rocks. That is rocks older than 3.6 billion years. And by today's standards, undertake some very primitive geochemical investigations. So I started that in 1976. And we had two field seasons, 76 and 77. And it was actually at the end of the 1976 field season that two long-standing working relationships started. Because when I'd finished my obligations for the Greenland survey, I was then met up with Vic McGregor on his boat. And there was this other English guy on the boat called Clark Friend. And basically, I remained a collaborator with Vic McGregor up to his death in 2000. And as I speak now, I'm still a collaborator with Clark Friend. So we've been collaborating together for 43 years, which may be approaching some Guinness Book of Records for scientific collaborators. And then in 1978, there was a what was called a NATO Advanced Studies field workshop on the old rocks to south of Nuke. And I was invited along as a one of the field guides because some of the sites to be visited were actually on my PhD area. And one thing led to the other. And out of that, I ended up being offered a combined Geological Survey of Greenland plus Royal Society of London Research Fellowship once my PhD was completed. And that research fellowship was to focus on Isua. Isua is a large area that borders the ice cap inland northeast of Nuuk, which comprises the largest extent of the most ancient rocks on Earth, rocks that are almost 4 billion years old. It had been realised that, of course, over the past eight years or so that Isua was an extremely special place, unique in the world. Despite a lot of intensive research around the world, it is still a unique place in the world in terms of the fidelity of some of the information one can get about the very early earth. So although there had been, shall we say, a preliminary geological map of the area made by a survey geologist called Jan Alart, it was realised that actually a much more detailed map was required of this very special geological area. So there were two strands to that postgraduate research fellowship. One was contractual obligations to the Greenland Survey to make a much more detailed map of not only the Issa supercrustal belt, but also the adjacent areas dominated by gneisses, which have literally been untouched apart from a few spot landings and an occasional walkout from the Issa supercrustal belt. And the other obligation, of course, was research into the Issa supercrustal belt. That lasted for two years. I then returned unemployed to the UK 
And then what happened after I'd been there for a couple of months, which seemed very quaint these days, a letter arrived from the Greenland survey <laughs> saying, regrettably, due to the tragic death of Jan Alart, that they wanted in 1982 for me to continue the mapping out from the immediate Isua area. So I ended up getting a Carlsberg Fund short-term fellowship for about one and a half years where I returned to Copenhagen and I was involved in producing a 1 to 40,000 scale map of Isua with a accompanying 80-page bulletin. So that was the um, end of that particular era. All options had run out based in Copenhagen and at that stage I moved over to St. John's in Canada because I had in a summer off from Greenland in 1983 actually been working on the early Archean in Labrador which is basically a continuation of the geology in West Greenland. So that project continued in an entirely laboratory fashion but I couldn't wrench myself away from Greenland. Moving over to Canada, St. John's Memorial University in Newfoundland. Of course, in the same province you have Labrador, in the northern Labrador you have bits of little slivers of uh, very old crust as well, which I had already spent one field season on. So having made a sort of big move across the Atlantic, why did I continue or wish to continue working on the Greenland stuff? I guess because... One felt that one was at a really exciting point in the studies of the Greenland stuff that one just simply didn't want to walk away from. In that respect, I'm not talking so much about the early Archean at this stage, but actually at the stage we're at in looking at the way tectonics worked in the Archean, in particularly the tectonostratigraphic terrain model that we were starting to build up from the previous field season. The terrain model Alan refers to is the idea that the rocks in the nuke area, although most of them appear superficially quite similar, actually once formed parts of distinct small continents that stretch back in age to the earliest history of the Earth and collided with each other about 2.7 billion years ago. Untangling the puzzle of how many distinct small continents there were, the nature of their different ages and histories, and mapping them out would prove to be a lifetime of work. So I think that's one reason. Of course, another very important reason is one had such a good working relationship with the people who are also working in Greenland. So altogether, I decided not to abandon Greenland, but instead continue. There was also logistically a little bit easier than one would think, that one didn't have to go all the way back over the Atlantic, get on a plane in Copenhagen or or whatever. But by one way or another, I actually managed to get onto American military transport planes, which used to, in those days, come up to Sonderstrom or Kangaluswak. Sonderstromfjord or Kangaluswak in Greenlandic is the name of the old American military base and the current international airport in West Greenland. So what I had to do there was to find my way to get a flight to a place called Goose Bay in Labrador, and then brandishing the right bit of paper, 
I was actually able to get onto military transport planes from Labrador into Greenland. Of course, you had to go through the military base in Sunderstromfjord, and of course, the military like the pecking order to be exactly right. So, because I was a junior scientist, I was afforded the military rank of captain in the American Air Force, just so that everybody knew on what sort of level one was on. So that meant that you could go to the, you know, the officers' mess as opposed to the non-officers' mess. So that was also a little bit of a sort of a bizarre thing. So that's how I was able to get over to Greenland and continue work. So in 1985, I went over that way. 1987 and 1988. There was a very, very big controversy going on in geology at that time. Should one believe what what expert field geologists are doing, or should you believe what the isotope geochemists are telling us? Because there were some rocks where we believed that these particular rocks were very ancient based on their field characteristics. On the other hand, isotope geochemists from Oxford, they were presenting isotopic evidence to show that actually these rocks were much younger. So there was, if you like, a complete divide of diametrically opposed views about what the field geologists were saying and also what the isotope geologists were saying. We knew we actually had to do a lot more detailed work. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Senior Scientist Alnita Steenfeld about introducing a stream sediment sampling program to Greenland, which would grow to decades of work and tens of thousands of samples.